When you walk into a restaurant, the first thing you notice is the smell, the lighting, the music, and how you're greeted at the door. That is what sets the stage on whether you have a good experience. Now you sit down. Back then, Mexican restaurants, your iced tea always came in a big plastic tumbler. We went to glass. Your plateware, your silverware, your napkins, 100% cloth napkin. It's not a polyester blend that just wipes. You can't even wipe up anything on it <laughs> or paper. And so all those little things before your food even hits the table, you've determined, I like this experience. Yeah. And so that's one thing is the same with shopping. As you show up at that point, I've got you. you Got to have clean bathrooms, all those. Hello, everyone. My name is Chris Powers, and I want to thank you for joining me on the Fort Podcast today. This show is an open-ended discussion and journey covering real estate, business, entrepreneurship, and investing. I would love to hear from you by tweeting me at Fort Worth Chris on Twitter. Hey guys, it's Chris. Thank you so much for joining me today on The Fort. I have my great friend, Ray Washburn, with me today. Ray and I met six years ago when I bought a cold storage building from him. And we've been friends ever since. He's also been a mentor of mine. He has um, invested in our business. He's just been a great uh, friend and somebody that I've learned a lot from. We cover a lot today. We cover his ownership and the story of Highland Park Village, how he's taken that center from 36 million in annual sales to almost 380 million in annual sales. We talk about him starting Me Casina, but now one of the largest and most popular Tex-Mex chains in Texas. We talk about his real estate career and what they're doing and backing operating partners. We talk about how he worked on the Trump administration and ran OPIC and what it was like to work with Donald Trump and a lot more. So thank you so much for continuing to join me on this journey. And I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Ray, thanks for joining me today. Yeah, thanks, Chris. Can you start with just like your background growing up and who you are? Sure, Chris. Well, I'm from Dallas. I grew up in Highland Park, went to Highland Park High School, then went to SMU and live in Highland Park now. So my entire life, I've lived in the zip code of 75205. So when I was at SMU, I ended up having to pay my way through college. And so I started off selling carpet to to the sorority girls and to the freshmen coming in. So I was able to actually, believe it or not, in one week, I can make enough money selling carpet to the students to pay for an entire year at SMU. So it was a good start. And then I ran all the vending machines and the fraternity houses and the apartment complexes around the school. And back when I was in college, we had washeterias and things, which today's yeah. kids get their parents to do their laundry. Or they have laundry services. But back then, I in the laundry mats, when you'd go do your laundry, I had all the vending machines in there. So that paid for my education. Who got you into vending machines and carpet and everything? You I was washing my clothes one time and I wanted a Coke and there wasn't a vending machine <laughs> in the uh, in the apartment complex. And so I called the guy, said, could I have the uh, vending machine contract? They had uh, six laundromats within, it was called University Gardens, it's right on the edge of SMU. And they said, sure. And I called Coke up and they rented me the machines and then I went and bought the drinks. And what what ends up happening is Coke or Pepsi 
will lease you the machines very, very cheap because they want you to sell their product. And so I learned it's kind of like razor blades. They sell you a cheap razor. I mean, they want you to buy all the razor, the blades. So they'll sell you the actual razor cheap. So, yeah. So you go to SMU, you graduate and your career started in, in real estate. We'll get into what you're doing today, but how'd you get started in real estate? I had a passion for it. And that's what I always tell. In fact, I'm telling my kids right now, I have two boys at SMU is follow your passion. And I would always love, I had a lawn mowing service growing up and people would have me work on the back of their houses. I worked in construction in the summers for a home builder in, in the park cities. And so I had just had a passion for it from a very, very young age. And I think it was from construction and the creative side of, of it. And actually having my lawn mowing service, I learned property management at an early age. And that's what I always tell people, if you're going to get in the real estate business, the first place you want to start is in property management because you have to learn what clean property does. And anyway, that's actually served me well through my whole career is picking up trash. Did you start in retail or did you start in something else? I started buying old duplexes and fixing them up, painting them and like the the way most people start. I'm sure you started too. Exact same way. Remodeling bathrooms and (laughs) fixing up duplexes and leasing them out and selling them. Yep. And now fast forward, you know, to today, uh, I want to talk about kind of two notable real estate um, projects, one being uh, the village, Highland Park Village. But you've really kind of transformed your career. I wouldn't say that just totally transformed. I know you're still buying assets for yourself, but you back a lot of operating platforms now. How do y'all, how did y'all start thinking about that? And how do you find a partner that you're going to back? Well, first, you look for someone that has a great reputation. Yep. One thing I always tell people, it's it's uh, it takes a lifetime to make a reputation. It takes one bad deal or to lose it. And yep. so uh, we do a lot of background check on the people we're going to invest in first. And then we look for hopefully someone who's, a, what I don't want to do is invest with someone that gets out of their lane. Right. For example, we backed a group that left Gables called Streetlights Residential, high-rise residential group you've probably seen around town. We put up, we lifted that management group out we funded them for a year while they chased a bunch of deals. And now we've got, we've done probably $2 billion worth of projects with them, high rise apartments, but they stay in their lane. And anytime they start talking about, Hey, let's go do a hotel or an office building retail. We're like, no, you're high rise residential yep. developer and stick in that for someone like you in, in your industrial things. I mean, you're passionate about what you're doing. I, I love hardworking people that have worked their way up. And so back you, they're, other retail guys uh, that I back, but they focus on retail. But whenever anyone gets out of their lane is when trouble starts because they're not doing what their passion is and what they're really good at. If you took like a street lights type deal, and I know you have relationships with several businesses at the scale that um, the street lights at, what does a deal look like? Are y'all investing in the GP? Or are you just LP? You don't have to give specifics, but like, how do you think about it? Well, on that particular deal, we're... They, we own the operating company. Okay. We're 50, actually 50, 50 partners in the operating company. We supply the kind of chase cost and the overhead cost until they get stood up yep. where they're able to do it on their own. And then we supply 90% of the GP money. They put in 10% to the management group. And then we split economics 50-50 after that. And do y'all help them raise the LP equity or oh, yeah. they do that on their own? Yeah. No, we help. Well, Typically, you get a construction loan, you get a MES loan, and then the equity is, you know, what we'll supply in them. And let's say it was a $100 million 
property, you get a 60%, $60 million loan. You can usually get a MES piece for 80 to 90% of the equity piece. And then the last 10%, we do 90% of. And and real quick, before we go into Highland Park Village, he's, he was talking about staying in your lane. The way I met Ray, uh, my industrial career, uh, we were looking at a cold storage building here in Fort Worth five or six years ago. And I looked up the ownership and Ray was the owner. And I remember looking him up and thinking, this guy's never going to answer my phone call. I'm probably going to get, you know, somebody. And sure enough, call Ray's in. Hey, Ray, I want to buy your building. Great. I'll meet you there at 9 a.m. tomorrow. (laughs) And here we are. So if you have a deal or uh, something interesting, Ray will pick up the phone and and, uh, talk. All right. The most notable of them all is Highland Park Village arguably maybe one of the best retail assets in the entire country. Let's just talk about first how you bought the damn thing in 2008, nine. Yeah, it was May of 2009. The Highland Park Village, for a little historical context, was the first shopping center in the United States. And the reason it's known as that is we own all the streets and the utilities and everything on the on the inside. In Fort Worth, for example, you have Camp Bowie, Camp Bowie and it's city street, multiple ownership up and down the street. When the village was built, the developers came up with the concept to build a self-contained shopping center. Yeah, No one had ever designed one before. So if you look at the Hound Park Village from the air, it looks like a Texas courthouse square. The middle where me casino and all is was where the courthouse would go. And the racetrack around it looks like you're in a small town. So that was the concept, a small town, you know, courthouse surrounded by shops. So... The family had built it, owned it from 1931 until 1976, and they sold it to Henry S. Miller Company for $5 million. It's all well-documented, so I don't mind sharing. $5 million. <laughs> Average rent was $4 a foot gross. Wow. Gross, okay? <laughs> 76. We bought it in May of 09. The average rent was $36, and I paid $162 million for it. Goddamn. Now, fast forward 11 years later, the last two leases we've done have been $300 a foot. So we've moved the needle a 10x in 11 years. And people are amazed at the way we were able to do that. Well, when I, I was a tenant with my Me Casino restaurant there for 20 years previous, and I saw we were paying a percentage rent, and I saw the lack of capital investment back into the property. And go back to me as a high school kid working in construction and picking up trash and mowing lawns, I realized it wasn't, it wasn't creating a Disney World feeling for shoppers coming in there because had old flower pots, cracked sidewalks. It just hadn't been reinvested into it. Yep. So that's the first thing I did is I went back in and I'll tell you an interesting story. All the awnings there were covered in in bird mess and dirty and dusty. The windows were all streaked. And I asked our property manager the day before we bought, I go, why, why are those so filthy and dirty? And they said, well, because the tenants are responsible for cleaning it. <laughs> so we went out that night, bought a power washer, I got a crew out there five o'clock the next morning after we bought it. We cleaned every window, cleaned every awning. We cleaned the parking lot. So when the tenants showed up the next day, they knew a new sheriff was in town. That was the beginning of turning that thing into a, what it is today is a sparkling property that people can't wait to get there. And so during the pandemic, I'd always wanted to brick the parking lots. And any of you that have been there recently have seen these beautiful brick parking lots on half the center because when those when the pandemic shut everybody down for 45 days, I knew that was the only chance I'd ever get to totally close down the parking lot and redo it. We've redone it. And if you go there today, it's pretty amazing pulling in there and seeing this incredible brick parking lot. 
What else have you done besides clean, put the brick? Like, are there other certain things that you did that somebody else could replicate or are these unique to just this property? Well, one is it's, I have a moat around this property. Yeah, so it's, it's at Mike and Bird in Preston. It's not four corners retail, single retail of incredibly high-end demographics of people who live around there. But we get about 20, 25% of our business from tourist convention people. We have a pretty large Asian shopper yeah. that lives in the mid cities and up north that hadn't been really, uh, we advertise on in the Asian newspapers and things oh, because really? it's a big aspirational buyer. Yep. But we took, we went, when I bought it, we had 60 tenants. Today we have 88 tenants. Wow. So what I, we wanted to do is create more storefronts. So you're like in New York and walking down the sidewalk and, you know, Banana Republic had 8,000 feet. We moved them out and replaced them with six small tenants. We took the production sales of that space from two and a half million dollars to $38 million God, because we got rid of, but I brought in like Cartier and Hermes and Dior and tenants like that. So I was going for more store, storefronts and much higher production. Were they, were, and none of those tenants were in the village before you bought it? Wait, Hermes was there. Chanel was there. The rest we've all brought in. And how does that whole like super luxury retail market work? Like once one person arrives, you can kind of start bringing them in right. on piggybacking off that. Yeah, or how'd you do it? Well, it's much like car dealers. When when you go to uh, buy a car, you have Ford and Chevy and Cadillac all kind of lined up next to each other. So. Yeah. But we opened a store there yesterday actually called Love Shack Fancy, which as a guy I'd never heard of. My daughter, my wife, they flipped out when we got this tenant. Retailing is happening so fast today and is pulling out of the department stores. The retailers want to have what's called vertical marketing. They, they don't want to sell for a, for a dollar to Neiman Marcus and then Neiman sells it for $2. They want to capture the entire profit margin yep. on something. So Love Shack Fancy comes in. Yesterday was their first day. They had over 800 people shop there yesterday. But that's somewhere where high school girls and college girls shop. So it's not just the high, high end of Hermes. It is this kind of fast fashion that's happening today. But, it, you know, they're hot. They're smoking hot right now. I mean, will they be in three or four years? That's another thing I do is I do as short of a lease as I possibly can do. Right. And most people want to have 10, 20-year leases. I'd rather have a three to five year just because fashion is changing so quickly. And the last thing I'll be using this Love Shack Fancy as an example you can go online and buy their stuff. Easily to do. You want retailers to come in and create that experience that you want because not everyone wants to sit at their computer and order clothes. You know, a guy will order Peter Millar golf shirts online because yeah. it's no big deal. The most shoppers want to go and actually walk in the store and have this great experience and buy something there rather than go online. So that's another thing that we've learned from doing this. And, you know, Tenants at like a Williams Sonoma, for example, we got rid of because people were going in there, they were browsing and then going to buy online. Yeah. Because that shopping experience wasn't the same. So. Right. When you think of retail being dead, you're clearly painting a picture that it is not dead. Like, what does retail is dead mean to you and why is that wrong? Well, it's not wrong. It's shifted itself. It's the commodity, you know, a commodity item. It's also the experience that you're getting. Now, if you're walking into a to a big department store today, that isn't a great experience. They're understaffed. You know, you're kind of having to shop for yourself. You're walking through these big spaces. Our center being a storefront, drive up, walk right in, get your stuff and come out. There's a feeling of safety. Um, in this COVID era, people like to be out in the open air. 
Yep. So that means a lot. The big box retailers, I mean, you look at Target. Target just had record sales and stuff. I mean, they've pivoted to finding an online presence with the physical presence. But you're going to find concepts like The Gap. Yep. The Gap used to have 20 plus stores in Dallas Fort Worth. They're cutting it down to one. Yep. So you can buy online, but you know, you get a shirt and they had a little rip in it. It was the wrong size. You don't feel like sending it back. You want to go to the physical store. They're going to have that last mile of delivery. Yep. So the the winners and losers out of retail are going to be the winners are going to be the great locations because yep. to have it. The secondary malls, the secondary locations, when you just have a limited number of stores in a the city, they're going to want the best of the best locations. You have personal shoppers there. Are those on your payroll? Is it a third-party company? How does that work? Well, I hope your wife's using them. <laughs> but <laughs> I've heard. That's how I know they exist. Yes. We have six women, and they're personal shoppers. And what happens is we pay their full salary. Yep. They go to all the shops, so the shops know it's not competition. Yep. Meaning uh, the salesman in a store is losing part of their commission or something like that. And we'll put an ensemble together. So if you're in Fort Worth and want to come to Dallas, they'll set everything up. They'll have Jimmy Choo shoes, uh, you know, Hermes scarf, a dress from Dior, and you can come and we have these beautiful salons. And we found our average ticket has quadrupled because they don't want to walk store to store to store, right? They want to be in one place. And our center is about 250,000 feet. Like I said, 88 stores. Well, that looks like 88 different departments. So I'm running the shopping center as if it's a department store right? to help. But the personal shopping has helped, like, especially a lot of SMU mothers that live in other cities. And let's say they live in Shreveport or Oklahoma City, don't have these nice stores. When they come in for parents weekend, the personal shopper is waiting for them and can take care of all their needs. We're also tax-free. I mean, a uh, duty-free. Yep. So if you're here from Mexico City or China or wherever, you can shop with us. We can ship it out and you pay no sales tax. So will they call and say, you know, hey, I'm coming in from Shreveport for Parents Weekend. This is my taste. And obviously, once they've gone through the system a couple of times, people know. But, you know, I'm looking for shoes, a scarf, a shirt. And then that shopper will go out and curate the whole experience. And they just walk into a room and it's all there to start picking from. They walk in, they're given a glass of champagne. They have some fruit on a tray. And then as they're doing it, the shoppers have assistance. And so as someone is sitting there looking to choose and they say the wrong size, or I'd rather have a different color. We have runners that will run to the stores and pick stuff up and bring it back. So, and the stores love it because it increases their sales, but it adds about, see the village, the year we bought it did 68 million in sales. This year we'll do 380 million. Oh my gosh, man. And the personal shopping piece is around a $10 million piece of business that just, and that's found business. You've also added a ton of high-end restaurants. One of the most notable things probably that's been a huge success is Park House. Mm -hmm. What has Park House done for the center? Park House is a, for anybody listened a few episodes ago, Brady Woods, social concept. But what does that do for the center? It's about 18,000 square feet. It's on a third floor of a building. And if you look at the great cities of the world, London, New York, they have these clubs like Soho House. Some of you have heard about Uh art house in, in London and places like that. The old men's club or the old downtown petroleum clubs and city clubs in most of these cities are kind of boring places. You go down there, you feel like you're eating with your grandparents and you can't wait to get out of there. <laughs> what Park House has done is they curate a lot of things. They'll have authors come up, they'll have music ensembles, they have fashion shows. So they work hard at running it like a business. They have 
we have 2,000 members in the one in Dallas with a 3,000 person waiting list, 3,000 people. And it's about, I think it's around 3,000 a year, 5,000 a year, not, not real expensive. But people that move in, you hear all these Californians moving in the into Texas. Well, they come into Dallas and they want to join a country club. Well, it's like, wait five years to get in. Yep. And this is a way that they can feel important and have a place to go. We have a lot of out-of-town members because you can live in Midland and you have a place to take clients when you come to Dallas. But the important thing for us as a shopping center, every day there are multiple lunch women's luncheons there. There are dinners there. So what happens is they come out and they immediately go shop when they walk out of the luncheon because they're all dressed up and they're feeling pretty good. And, and so it's been a huge success for the operator, for Brady and for us. I mean, yep. it's been a massive win-win. Can you do one of the, can you do 10 of those in Dallas? No, they built a thing called the Cowboy Club up at the Star in yep. Frisco. And that kind of fits that demographic. But our demographic was, how do you bring someone in that's going to shop? Yep. So you've seen Dallas. I mean, you've, you're born and raised there. It's now becoming, I mean, it's a magnet for the mm -hmm. best businesses in the world. Mm -hmm. It's becoming Uber just moved there. Why is Dallas just winning constantly? Like what, what is, what is driving the wins? Is it the ecosystems there and people keep coming or is there something deeper than that? Well, there are a lot of things. When you go to a lot of cities there, uh, Dallas is a very open city. If somebody moves in, you know, you can get in a, a park. I mean, the clubs, there is a bit of a wait, but it's not a wall up like you have in a lot of the East Coast cities and stuff. And people move in and it's an open society. You can get in the best neighborhoods. The schools aren't, private schools aren't that difficult to get into like they are in a lot of other places. And it's affordable. Yep. I mean, it's a joke compared to what a home in Holland Park costs versus a home in Palisades in California is. I mean, there's California people coming here. They, not only that, but they, they're not paying a 13.5% in personal income tax. Right. So it's like getting an immediate bump. And it's so convenient. The other thing I hear, I was with someone last night who just moved to Dallas. And they said, the amazing thing they get is there's no traffic. Yep. You're able to all live in the park cities or even Preston Hollow, work downtown. There's never a traffic jam. Yep. And there's street, and I know that's the same in Fort Worth. And to them, that adds so much to the quality of life. It does. I'm going to go take one more step back. I meant to ask you this, but it goes back to property management, owning Highland Park Village, your attention to detail and just understanding like the consumer. For somebody listening to this, it's like, should I put a little more money into like, this property or is the, is the customer really going to get it? You've, you understand we're about to get into me casino as well, but you understand the consumer. People naturally understand detail, right? Like, how do you think about it when you were sitting there going, we, we redid all the brick in the parking lot and we started redoing the awnings and the windows. Like, why is a brick parking lot better than an asphalt parking lot to the consumer? Well, if I was a REIT or I was going to buy a property and flip it, I wouldn't have done that. Mm -hmm. But I'm going to own this thing for hopefully generations. The quality aspect that goes into it, the, it registers with, with the consumer. I own some shopping centers in Oak Cliff. You know, very poor demographics. Have yep. Aldi as an anchor. Yep. So when I bought those, there's graffiti all over the back, the back walls. You don't even see from the shopping center, but in the alleys, there are cracks in the parking lot, dead plants. It's like, well, why would you do that in such a poor demographic area? I go, the consumer realizes that. First thing we did was my property manager carries spray paint with them. Whenever you see graffiti, you've got, it's the broken window concept. Right. They clean it up. The trash is always picked up. 
potholes are fixed. Did I brick a parking lot down in Oak Cliff? No, but I gave, I rewarded the consumer for the business they're giving me yep. for a pleasant experience. And that is not having burned out lights, it's not having trees that haven't been trimmed. It's those things. So it, it's not only high end, it's just the yeah. overall, and the consumer will, will reward you because they feel safe. They feel like it's, it's a clean place to go. And they feel like, well, I'm shopping there and the landlord, you know, you take gum off the sidewalks. Think how many shopping centers you've gone and you've got horrible signs up in the windows and, uh, you know, paper signs up and neon all over the place. We clean all that up. And as you drive in, it's a nice uh, experience yep. for them. And the consumer can notice it, whether they know it or not. All right. Everybody's favorite Tex-Mex meet Casino. Mm-hmm. But first... Let's take a quick break to highlight this episode's sponsor, Juniper Square. If you aren't familiar with Juniper Square, it's an easy to use all-in-one investment management software designed specifically for real estate owners. We have been using it at Fort Capital for several years now, and it has completely revamped the experience we're able to provide our investors through reporting, management, and efficiency. Here's Brandon Sedloff, VP of Sales at Juniper Square, explaining more about their platform. When we started to look under the hood of these real estate investment managers that were telling us about their problems, one of the things that we identified was that kind of the operating system of record for managing a lot of the most important information was still spreadsheets. They have never been designed to be a system of record, right? And and when we when we started looking at kind of why real estate reporting was the way that it was, what we found is that spreadsheets were being used as a system of record. And the problem that that created was it makes it really hard to take this information, get the information out of spreadsheets and get it into the hands of the people who need it the most, which are your investors. You can check out episode 37 to listen to my full conversation with Brandon or visit cjunipersquare.com for more information. That's S-E-E junipersquare.com. And now back to the show. Take me through the story of how you even got into that business and where where it is today. And then let's just talk about what it was like to be in the restaurant industry in 2020. Sure. Uh, we opened uh, June 6, 1991 in Preston Forest in Dallas. Well, we had 10 tables. Last year, we served 8 million people. So we've grown from 10, 10 tables to 8 million people a year in it. And the way it started was there was a little hole-in-the-wall restaurant called Mia's on Lemon Avenue in Dallas. And I was a customer theirs in college and in my 20s. And one day I got a call from this guy named Michael Rodriguez. And he said, hey, uh, he was my waiter. He said, you want to have lunch? I said, sure. And we had lunch. And he goes, his mother was the cook. His dad, I mean, his dad was the cook. His mom was the front of the house. And he was the waiter in this little restaurant. He said, I'm tired of my parents and the fights we're having. He goes, I want to start my own restaurant. Will you back me? And being young and naive, people always ask, why did I get in the business? I said, I was young and naive. I said, how much could you open a restaurant for? He said, $25,000. I said, okay. Young and naive? I said, let's do it. So we leased some space, started the construction. Then he comes back and goes, I need another $25,000. I'm like, so my best friend, my college roommate lives in Corsicana. And I, I called him up and said, hey, I'm over my skis on this at twenty-five grand. Why don't you come in? So he put in $25,000. Then... Michael came back and said, I need another 25000 So I got my brother to come in. And we split the deal, third, a third, a third. And we opened it for $77,000, believe it or not. Yeah. And we built that, you know, 2,000 employee, huge company off a $77,000 investment. And so, and then our second location was in Highland Park Village. And that opened in 93, February 93. When that opened, 
that got every landlord in the world wanting to come do business with us. And I think Sundance Square opened in about 95. Yep. And so uh, anyway, now we have 27 casinos and you know. Were you active in the business or like when it was going from location to location with somebody driving that growth or were you kind of active in it early on? That, that was me. I, yeah. I, was, I was the driver. Yeah. Um, my my roommate from college was, of course, Ken. He's in the fruitcake business. Yeah. My brother's a lawyer. <laughs> and so uh, I was kind of driving the real estate and the growth and pushing that hard. And then Michael was handling the kitchen and the operation side and things like that. So. I think the the uh, the Mexican um, culture's done the best job of it's a tortilla, meat, and cheese. And no matter however you orient the tortilla, it's like a burrito, tortilla, meat, and cheese, yeah. taco, tortilla, meat, and cheese. Right. It's the best business ever. Well, it is. And w- one thing that Michael did is he now goes by Miko, but we went from like a lot of restaurants serve frozen chicken breast, you know, prepackaged spice stuff like that. Ours is a total bistro kitchen. It's all fresh, you know, it's full-breasted chicken, you know, it's the best cut of beef and the best part of cheese. His thing was, let's elevate the quality of the product above all our competition at the same price. And we did that. And that's another thing, like going to a shopping center, seeing it's clean and all, the consumer immediately notices that. And the thing I learned in the restaurant business that really coincides with what I have in the the, uh, real estate business is when you walk into a restaurant, the first thing you notice is the smell, the smell nice, yep. the lighting, the music, and how you're greeted at the door. That is what sets the stage on whether you have a good experience. Now you sit down. Back then, Mexican restaurants, your iced tea always came in a big plastic tumbler. We went to glass. Your plateware, your silverware, your napkins, 100% cloth napkin. It's not a polyester blend that just wipes you can't even wipe up anything on it <laughs> or paper. And so all those little things before your food even hits the table, you've determined, I like this experience. Yeah. And so that's one thing is the same with shopping as you show up at that point, I've got you. You got to have clean bathrooms, all those. Did you learn that just along the way or did somebody teach you that? Just learned. Just school hard knocks. Yeah. Learned along the way and learned the experience you want. Go into some restaurant sometime and, and just sit there and look. Just sit back and go, what kind of music? Are they playing in Mexican restaurant ACDC? Yeah. You know, <laughs> are they playing music that is the right level, the right type of music? Yeah. And then look at look at your silverware, look at your napkin, look at your glassware. Yeah. All those little things add up. How much of it is being a kind of cultish? We had a, when we played golf last year at uh, Trinity Forest, you were saying, um, every location in Texas has been wildly successful. I think you said like you opened one in Oklahoma. It, it wasn't maybe as doing as well as Texas or something, but you're like, sometimes brands don't travel. Why do brands yeah. not travel? Well, because of the taste profile of Americans. So we opened one in Atlanta, which we closed. We have one in Washington, D.C., which we closed. We went to Atlanta. They thought, me, Casino, they thought that was Italian food. You go to Washington, D.C., <laughs> it's a different... It's a different flavor profile. You know, if you go to California, we use red sauces in Texas. They want green sauces in California. Yeah. The only real food that travels nationally is pizza, hamburgers, Chinese food. Yeah. And and Italian food. Other than that, you can't even barbecue in the Southeast. It's pork over here. It's beef, you know, so it's, it's pretty difficult to grow, to grow a chain nationally. You could say, well, what about Chipotle? Something like that. Well, what, what is Chipotle? 
It's just kind of beef. It's not Tex-Mex yeah. at all. Yep. And so they've been successful because they've created, like for my high school kids, you know, fill the gut up yeah, at yeah. a cheap price <laughs> with, a, with, a, with just massive amounts of rice, beans, and beef. And that's all that is. So did you just grow that business out of cash flow or did you bring in like private equity no, at no, some point? Just, or ju- Just our own. Just and what are you going to do with it? Just keep growing? Yeah. You know, the hardest thing in business to find is a business that creates consistent cash flow. Yeah. And we've had offers to sell it, but why? I mean, then I got to find another business that, as I was saying earlier, that lane of understanding that lane is a good one. I backed other people like the Crew Wine Bars, the KDHL Ice House, Hudson House, and things. I find passionate people in other restaurant lanes to put money behind right with. We own half of Snappy Salads, which has got 54 of these salad concepts. Well, that all the guy gets up every day and think about is selling salads. Right. I don't want him thinking about selling steak. Yeah. <laughs> and so, no, it's it, it's just like property. You know, a retail guy is not going to be an industrial guy. Right. In the so we found our lane is the Tex-Mex deal, and we'll try to ring fence Dallas-Fort Worth and open. We just did a lease at Clyde Warren Park, downtown Dallas. That'll be probably our highest grossing unit um, right in the middle of that park. It's going to be, you know, spectacular. But, you know, we have a brand here and, you know, it's just, why give it up? Yeah. So 2020 was probably, there was a lot of winners and and unfortunately uh, losers. Uh, restaurant industry had it tough in 2020. Mm-hmm. What was it like uh, if we just keep stay on the meat casino? What was it like being a restaurant owner in 2020? Well, we pivoted our business. And this is what's going to be difficult for the one-off operator to pivot with someone of a midsize. We are the big chains. First of all, our to-go went from 10%, which basically was a, so what, you know, pickup business to today, it's about 35% of our business when things have kind of stabilized, you know, obviously got up to hundred percent there for a while. It just absolutely, our kitchens are set up to feed people in the four walls, not outside. It's entirely different business. So we had to regroup, reconfigure our kitchens rethink the technology around ordering. It used to be you'd call in, they'd give them your order and they'd stick it in the kitchen and go in. Well, our food hits the table in eight and a half minutes after you order it. Next time you go to Mikasina, if it's not there between eight and a half and nine minutes, something's wrong. So if you sat at the table and then all of a sudden, all these to-go orders went in the kitchen and the kitchen all of a sudden was inundated and it took you 15, 18 minutes to get your food, you might not come back to our restaurant. So we had to build a whole technology system. So when to-go orders, I mean, the, the day that just hammered us worse was Cinco de Mayo. That's the day everybody wants Mexican food. And everybody wants it at seven o'clock. Yeah. <laughs> and so we just got snowed that day. I went up to Mikasina Home Park Village at night to get my order. Yeah. I mean, there must have been 200 people waiting out there. They were ready to lynch me yeah. <laughs> because the order, they guy went up there thinking he was going to get it at seven. They're saying, well, your food's not going to be ready until nine o'clock. Yeah. And then people in the restaurant are like, where's my food? And so we had to rebuild to where within the restaurant, the order comes out first and the to-go orders come in and they layer it in. So you might call and say, or email and you want it at seven. If we can't get it at seven, it's 745, we'll tell you that then. Yep. So if you're a one-off restaurant operator, I mean, you got to build in this technology. Yep. The cost of to-go is to about 300 basis points, 3% higher than you eating in the restaurant. So the margins we work off of are kind of a 13 to 15% profit margin. 
Well, now all of a sudden that gets eroded by this 3% of packaging. Just think how our bag, that Mikasina striped bag that you see everywhere, those are 60 cents each. I mean, so those things aren't cheap. And then the plastic wear, and then we give you chips and, you you don't think about all that stuff. And then the package, you know, everyone used to do those clamshells, you know, styrofoam deal where everything would leak out if it tilted over and things. (laughs) So we had to spend a lot of money on upgrading our entire, all our packaging and things. So as an industry, everyone had to rethink the way you did it. We had to create um, several parking spaces at the front to where you could pull up and we could take the food out and deliver it to your car. Well, in the past, people didn't do that because your waiter might get held up, you know, because you carry a lot of money. Like, so now everything's paid for by credit card. So there's nothing that took the whole security issue out of it. That's why you can go to Chili's now and all those things. And then you've heard of a ghost kitchen, I'm sure. And a ghost kitchen is a centralized kitchen that does to go. We've looked at that. That's kind of down the road. I mean, the business is now stabilizing out. But I got to tell you, the PPP money, if the restaurant industry didn't have that, everyone would have been bankrupt because we could use PPP for three things, rent, utilities, and employees. Yep. And you think, well, gosh, you just shut down for 60 days and reopen. It's hard to get the band back together. If I took 2,000 people and said, I'm not paying you, come back in a month, they're now becoming a roofer or a maid or or going back to Mexico or something. Yep. And you lose it. The great thing about PPP is it kept the band together. Yep. Even though we had nothing for them to do. And the last thing is, sanitation and health. And we know we're going to maskless now, which our, our employees are going to continue to wear masks, you know, for the foreseeable future. But every time we sanitize the table, the gloves employees wear, the masks they wear. I mean, that's about a 1%. I mean, that probably cost us million and a half dollars, $2 million last year to supply all those things. I mean, it adds up. When you spray down a table and we turn a table five times a night, just imagine it starts adding up and adding up. And after a while, your wood tables with the spray starts peeling up the wood. Yeah. So you got to refit. It's all those little things that you don't really think about. Yeah. But it's the nickels and dimes that make up our business. Is there is there places where you're now saving money because of COVID or it's it's just ex- more expensive across the board? You know, commodity prices for us have been pretty consistent. Avocado prices have shot up because when the COVID hit, you couldn't bring avocados in the United States. And so- all of us, and everybody wants to eat guacamole now, you know, it's a national food. But other than avocados, our commodity prices have been pretty steady, except packaging costs, because yeah. this is another unintended consequence. New York, California has gone away from plastic bags. So you go to Target or Whole Foods, they don't give you a plastic bag with your groceries. It's a paper bag now. Well, that competes with us yep. on our delivery bags. So, sorry. I'm going to the minutia of it, but it adds up, adds up, adds up. It's actually pretty fast. I'm I'm like pretty blown away how much of the details you're actually like know to the pinpoint. Yeah. How, how do you, do you meet once a week with the business? Like, how do you know all this stuff? Every day. Yeah. I'm dealing with it every day. You love it? Yeah. Yeah, I love it. You know, I deal with just problems. Yeah. Because I mean, it doesn't do any good to call me up and say, hey, you know, we sold... 200 Mambo taxis yesterday. Yeah. I'm more concerned to tequila prices go up. Yeah. <laughs> and if they have, let's go beat them up. We're the number one seller of sauce of silver tequila in the United States. Or in the world, actually. Is that the red sauce? No, sauce of silver oh, tequila. Got it. And so, you know, whenever they kind of like, oh, we're going to raise your price, you know, like 25 cents, we're like, we're switching tequilas. Oh, no, no. You know, so <laughs> it, it gets to, uh, you got to always have a, some kind of hammer on, on something like that. But all right, so you own the- uh, Wait, Last thing, last okay. thing. The state government, now they got to make this law, they're working on it, is alcohol to go. 
Yeah. And you can go to Mikasina now and get margaritas to go. And so that has been huge for savior for our business to be able to sell drinks to go. Because you can get your Mexican food. If you can get a quart of Mambo taxis and take them home, that's been a savior for so, all of this. So, well, what you were just saying, it's not a law, but you can still do it? Well, the TABC came out. The governor signed something that said during the COVID deal, it's okay to do it. Okay. So the cat's out of the bag. Everyone's doing it now. Yeah. And so you can get a summer beer or whatever you want at, at most places. Well, now, if they try to put the toothpaste back in the tube on this, the consumer's going to be very upset. There haven't been any issues with doing it. And that is really the way restaurants are able to survive. The biggest one fighting against it were people like Specs and Total Wine and all the people thinking they're selling you tequila to go to your house. Well, now they realize they're selling a lot more alcohol going through us. Yeah, yeah. And so they're all supportive. Y'all's Mambo Taxi is kind of your signature. Yeah. That's your signature. How important is it that a restaurant has like a signature dish, drink that people can kind of rally around? Well, you want to be known for something, you yeah. know. I mean, you go to Pat O'Brien's, you get the hurricane in New Orleans and, yeah. and different things. And it's it's uh it's important, but it's the quality. I always ask my kids when we go to a restaurant and go to a new place, I go, is there anything we ate tonight that we would come back just for that one dish? Yeah. And it could be nachos. Yep. It could be you go to a great steakhouse and every steak's like every other steak, but they have incredible onion rings. Yep. Or they have incredible appetizer, incredible dessert. So you always want to be known for something and something that you'll come back for. And do you kind of uh, make sure that Me Casina is not constantly innovating the menu? It's like, just keep it the way it is? Or do you encourage them to kind of switch things up a little? Well, that's that's a very good question. Not only Me Casina, but the entire industry has gone back to their menus. And if you go to any restaurant, look how much smaller the, the menu is. Yeah. I think we shrunk our menu 30%. Through COVID or just over the years? Well, we, we got into it. And now we started doing all that to go that I was telling you about earlier. The problem was, if you had 100 items on your deal, on your menu, and you had one dish that you sold three of a night, which you'd be shocked if you look at a menu, even a steakhouse, you say, how many of uh, the portobello mushroom, you know, casserole do you sell? <laughs> you know, and they're like, we sell two a night. But guess what it does? We used to have a salmon on our deal. We'd sell five or six a day per restaurant. Well, we're manufacturing food. It's going down the line. Enchiladas, tacos, everything, fajitas. All of a sudden, the order comes in for one salmon. Everything stops. Got to go to the freezer or the refrigerator, pull out the salmon. It changes the whole process out. Yeah. So everyone has really said, okay, what is our best selling items? 20% of your menu sells 80% of your food. So if you go to Mikasina, our Rico salads, yeah. our basic Tex-Mex, that is 80% of our sales. Some of the other things, a little exotic, like tilapia and a couple other things, everything, oh, you got to have all these health food and all, this, all that stuff. And at the end of the day, it's like, are people even buying it? Yep. And so it made everyone in the industry really sit back and look at it. Do we innovate and add new things? Not really, because that's not what people, people aren't going to me casino to get an innovative tamale. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we've been in business 31 years. You know what you want. You go to Joe T. Garcia's in, in uh, Fort Worth, that menu hadn't changed in six. 70 years, probably. Yep. And it's like fajitas, tacos, and enchiladas. You know, yeah, you know what you're getting. How do restaurants make money? Is it just off alcohol and the food is free? Or is there margin in the food? There's not a lot of margin in the food. Yeah. It, it really isn't alcohol. Yeah. And so if you look at something like a Chipotle or something like that, that is pure volume, man. You got to pump the volume to, to get um, 
And you got to squeeze cost every little spot on a on like a Chipotle. Um, for us, yeah, big part. Our sales average probably system wide, thirty percent alcohol. You don't want in the restaurant business. You don't want to be any higher than that because then you're thought of as a bar, and families won't go to you and different things. But you can't. A Chili's, I think, is twelve percent. Yeah, and if you look at their margin for their sales versus someone with 30%, I mean, you'd much rather have the 30, but you get up to 40, there's always a hotter bar. So we try to keep it, you know, in that. Our, our highest restaurant is probably 50% alcohol because it's more in a young area. And our suburban restaurants like in Rockwall or Highland Village and places like that is probably closer to 18. Yep. So you want to blend it out. You own most successful Tex-Mex chain, probably in Texas, most successful retail center in Texas, uh, obviously very versed in hospitality and people interacting. And we've just gone through like 18 months of half the world saying like, we'll never hang out again together and we're going to live in our closet for the rest of our life. And then there's another half the world that's ready to get going again. Mm -hmm. Is there anything interesting from your seat that's like, we are about to head into the most, the roaring twenties, people are about to go nuts. Is there things you're already starting to see through your lens? It's like, this is coming. Well, like one of the things I'm involved in is called the Katie trail ice house in Dallas, which yep. is one of the top volume, uh, liquor sales in the state. And I was there yesterday and, you know, you got to wait to get in the place and it holds a thousand people. I mean, people are ready to get out and, and, you know, enjoy themselves again. I can't speak to office or people can go back to office. i We've been full office since the beginning because yeah. where I'm an outward facing business. I mean, yeah. people are showing up our shop. I, I, I think it's going to get kind of back to normal in a lot of senses. But then you look at like the malls, like I have a Mika scene in the Galleria. And it's like, are people going to go back to the mall? I, I don't know. I don't know if, if that retail gets decoupled. Yeah. And we just took over and became Michael Dell's partner on Knox Street in Dallas. That's right. And so... I was spent the day over there yesterday and we're going to rebuild that whole thing. It's going to be a billion dollar rebuild of Knox, bringing in retail and hotel and off. So we're trying to figure out what's the proper retailers of that. Well, there's a, as I said earlier, there are a lot of retailers, like one of the hottest stores now is selling tennis shoes. It's crazy. People put thousand dollars a pair of tennis shoes. Well, that doesn't fit in the Highland Park Village. Yeah. But that could fit on something like a Knox Street. So people want to get out. They're not going to sit around their apartment all day. Why would it fit on a Knox and not in Holland Park? D different demographic. Yeah. You know, on Knox Street, it's a much younger crowd. Like the Lululemon fits much better over there. Apple fits much better over there than in the village. We're trying to keep Holland Park Village higher in fashion. And really, when you think of fashion in the middle part of the United States, that's where you go. What people forget is like Rodeo, our competition nationally, Rodeo Drive in L.A., that's probably a hundred different owners of buildings in a public street. Yeah. Worth Avenue and Palm Beach, multiple different buildings. We have to look at the Holland Park Village as if I'm the director of a symphony and I've got all these different things I got to play and make them all work together. Knox Street, we only own half the street. The south side of the street where Restoration Hardware is building that huge new building, Weir's is building that, you know, we got to have it all coordinate together with them. That's what makes it a little bit grittier and more urban. Do you think of a competition also being like Caruso's deal out in LA? Pacific Palisades? Yeah. Or the Grove? The, isn't it the Grove? The Grove is, like is a huge deal. No, because it's, it's Barnes & Noble, Nike Town. Yeah. It's more of a tourist attraction. Right. I mean, he's right. Done, 
I, I saw something. I think his parking revenue alone is $9 million a year. Wow. For the parking garages. I wish I could do that in the village. What's your parking so, revenue in the village? <laughs> you, it's all valet, right? No, no, it's self-park. We we have that. We got it's both. Self-park, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we got both. But but it's free for self-park. It's yeah. valet. It cost me money. I'm not making money. It's costing me money. Well, you're getting $300 a foot in rent, so mm-hmm. I'm not going to feel too bad. Yeah, for but you. you know, that's a misnomer. The $300, you say, my gosh, that's a lot of rent. No, well, look at it as a percentage of sales. Yeah. And when a retailer captures their entire margin, it doesn't matter. Are most retailers in the center there to make money or is it just marketing and branding for them? Oh, they're going to make money. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're doing... Because yeah. you always hear like, oh, they pay that, but they don't even care if they make money. It's just a marketing piece. That's more like Madison Avenue, which is like two and $3,000 rents. Yeah. Maybe a Rodeo Drive. $3,000 rents Oh yeah, Madison Avenue? Up to 5000 Now, that was pre-pandemic. What's going to happen in New York City? <laughs> Who knows? Do you own any real estate there? No. Thankfully not. Or California. <laughs> Staying out of both. <laughs> Florida, I'd go to. But what what makes the rent for them that are big tourist-driven deals, let's say in New York City, you got millions of tourists going up and down. So that's a billboard. For us, our conversion rate of our shopper is very, very high because if you're going to the village, you're going to shop. You're not going just to walk around. Yeah. All right. We're going to pivot out of business. Well, we're going to pivot out of private business, I guess, for a little bit. So- one of the most, I think, probably one of the coolest opportunities to work for an American president. You got to report directly to El Presidente Trump. What was that like? You know, it was fascinating because I, I didn't know him before the election. And so you see a lot of things on TV and all this bluster and all this stuff. And frankly, working for him and I reported directly to him And when I'd go to the Oval Office, which I mean, the out-of-body experience I had doing all this stuff was yeah. just crazy looking back at it. The, the travel, you know, access to things. But I'd sit down with him and he, and I'd be in a meeting with a few people and he was very quiet and he listened. He didn't have any papers or anything on his desk. He didn't take notes, but he would just look at you and he would get everyone else's opinion around uh, the table and anything I needed done, he was very receptive to doing and, and, uh, all the craziness you read in the press, I think that was way overblown, way overblown. Now you look at the policies and the regulations and stuff that they peeled back and did, and people are like, my gosh, I didn't realize how good it was. Well, you had to peel away what the newspapers were saying and actually what was what was happening. And so my experience was a fantastic experience. And the only reason, and I went from that, from running OPIC to going on the President's Intelligence Board, which was an incredible experience in itself because that is the oversight board for all the intelligence agencies. So I got to see deep dive into that as well. So he, he didn't meddle around. He let us do our job that I will say this for him. If you look at the agencies, he hired the first wave. They had a lot of, cause I don't really think he think he thought he was going to win. And usually when you go into <laughs> office, when you usually get elected, you've been a former governor or senator and like George Bush goes up there and he immediately knows who's going to be a secretary of interior and agriculture and transportation, all those things. Trump, I was on the transition team. They kind of show up and they look around going, well, we don't know anybody. That's why he wasn't part of that swamp of D.C. Yeah. So a lot of people he brought in, he didn't know. And he, that, frankly, they didn't do a real good job of vetting. But once they got to the second wave and they got rid of those first, you know, characters and in, in the after the first year. Everything was pretty quiet and settled down. You didn't 
you didn't hear all the craziness going on yep. because they were vetted better at that point. Did you have to interview with him? I remember watching the TV of like Rex Tillerson going in the front door of some like house that he was interviewing people like before yeah. he. Yeah, Rex, that was at his country club. I got involved very, very early on. Yeah. So I was vetted out at Trump Tower back uh, right after the election. He started doing Did that. Did he vet you? Well, we talked. What'd he say? What's up, Ray? He didn't know what OPIC was. <laughs> <laughs> well, because he didn't come from that world. Right. I mean, it really, I didn't know a whole lot. The reason I was well-suited for that is I, I helped start several banks and been on bank work. It basically, it's a lending deal. And I understood lending yep. and banking. And that's really what that, and private equity investing. But, you know, he let me go do my job. I, yeah. I wasn't interfered with. I kind of laid out my strategy for national security and foreign policy and they let you go do your job. Guys that got into trouble were ones that were doing, if you look at it, wasn't their policy regulation? It was stuff like Scott Pruitt, who was the uh, EPA guy who some lobbyist gave him his apartment for free. And, you know, all that, you know, extracurricular stuff that was outside of actually government. You know, Ryan Zinke's interior, he had some property in Montana that like Halliburton was leasing and were they paying him too much? And he was ruling on that. You know, it was all that stuff that was really had nothing to do with running your day-to-day business. But anyway, he, he left me alone and I, I mean, I had a great experience. Was there like a, is there a time or a, a, an interaction or a meeting that you'll just like never forget that was like, this is just so cool? Okay, when Bron- when Kavanaugh was up, yeah. do you remember they had, is he going to get in or not? Got all the grief. Well, I was in the Oval with uh, John Thune, Senator from... Um, South Dakota and Ron Johnson from Wisconsin. And we were going over some stuff I was working on. And then they came in and said, Mr. President, Susan Collins is going on. And you remember, she was a pivotal vote on Kavanaugh. And no one knew she's going to vote for him or against him, but she was the vote. And so we were in the Oval. So he goes, let's go watch it. And he has a huge TV, a little side room called the little Bill Clinton side room. Yeah. Off to the <laughs> side where they had a had a table and a big TV and we sat down and for 20 minutes she went on. It was just the four of us sitting in there and I was sitting next to, he was at the head of the table. I was sitting next to him and soon was across from him and they went through the whole, you know, why she, you know, what her thought was and thing at the very end, she goes, and I'm going to vote, you know, for him to be on the Supreme court. Well, right then staff erupted and everybody in the oval and he looked at me and I shook, I was first hand. He shook, he said, you know, we did it. I had nothing to do with it. I said, yes, sir, we did. You know? <laughs> and got over there. But that was an experience. It was just phenomenal to uh, be in there when that was a historical moment to have happened. And things like that, like the vote, it's like when you go to city council for zoning, it's like the decisions sometimes already made before you go into council. Yeah. That decision for him, like nobody really knew what Susan was going to do. It's no one totally knew. random. That, well, we had a feeling. But she didn't tip her hand as to 100% what she was going to do. Yeah. And then when she started talking for 20 minutes, you're all sitting around going, uh-oh. Because, you know, in the Senate, people trade stuff off. You know, you vote this way and I'll vote for you on that or this or that. And Susan was up for re-election and she was going to catch a lot of heat for voting for him because yeah. she's, you know, a center, you know, very much in the center as a Republican because she's from Maine. Um, so anyway, that that was a super cool experience. Yeah. One more question on on that since we're on it. Um, the media is 
just atrocious 99% of the time. Mm -hmm. And reality is nowhere close to what you read in the media. Would he get along with like Nancy and Chuck Schumer, like off camera? Like, did they no, no. Like, does does he talk to a Democrat off camera and it's not as bad in real life or is it as bad? bad. Yeah, it's bad. Yeah, it's bad. Okay. Yeah. Fair enough. It just is. I mean, there's just no, because they're doing everything they can to take him down. Now, in the old days with Reagan and Tip O'Neill, they'd have whiskey at night, kind of talk about stuff. They're a little more, I mean, this, because Trump was truly trying to change things. Yeah. And the old establishment, the status quo, didn't want things changed. Yeah. Is he going to run again? I have no idea. No idea. I'm just trying to sell Mexican food. We'll do that. So, well, yeah. That'll be part two of the uh, the uh, the podcast. Uh, you have been really uh, influential in the Republican Party for a long time and recently got a chance to run kind of OPIC under the Trump administration. Can you explain what OPIC is and why private business owners in, uh, should be thinking about it? Well, that's the Overseas Private Investment Corporation. And I ran, I had a $60 billion, I basically ran the private equity fund for the United States government. And you're thinking, what the what is the government doing in private equity? It is to go to developing countries that can't access, where U.S. companies can't access capital to do a project. Example, Vietnam. We funded a $400 million LNG project there for a U.S. company out of Baton Rouge. Why would we do that? Well, no U.S. company is going to finance a $400 million LNG deal in Vietnam because the offtake is the Vietnamese government. And so how do you know if you're a U.S. bank making that loan that your offtake agreement is going to get a little home cooked with local laws? What's offtake? Who buys it on the other end? Got it. Like the electricity. Got it. Or like ERCOT in Texas. Yeah. <laughs> ERCOT's selling an encore. And so, or I'll give you another example Uh we were open in 180 countries around the world. They had to have a GDP per person of less than 12,000 per year, which you think, oh my gosh, how many is that? That's the majority, vast majority of the world. And like in Africa, we would do a water project for, let's say a U.S. company wanted to, to build a uh, toll road in Botswana to connect the airport with a big industrial area. Well, who's going to fund that? So we go in and providing the funding why would a company want to do that? To make money or yeah, to, to make money. for goodwill? No, no, no. Okay. None of this was goodwill. None of this was aid. It, OPIC made about $800 million a year in profit. Wow. And so I had offices in- So you were the only profitable agency in the government, yeah, pretty much. That's pretty much. <laughs> Give it all back to Treasury every year. Yeah. Um, so I traveled. I went to 36 countries. I was the highest ranking government official, basically, to go to some of these places. Like I'd show up in El Salvador or I'd go to- like Botswana and I'd meet with the presidents of these countries and, you know, I was treated, with, it was a cool job because I was treated like, because I also had, you know, I was also carrying a bunch of money in my pocket yeah. to do projects in their country. Yeah. We're trying to stay ahead of the Chinese because the Chinese were um, coming in all these countries and doing infrastructure projects. But um, Botswana, for example, is a big diamond mining place. Well, we're trying to get middle-class jobs there. Well, uh, there's a U.S. diamond cutter that wanted to move diamond cutting from from uh, Antwerp to the source in Botswana. But it was going to cost them $20 million to build a diamond cutting plant. But it was going to employ 500 people. Well, for us, that's good because employees, countries that have high unemployment are stable countries. 
the Northern Triangle, which is Nicaragua, El Salvador, Guatemala, one reason they're all coming to the United States, they don't have any jobs down there. Yeah. Why don't they have any jobs? There's no capital to support job creation. Right. And so that's what we are, we are doing. So do y'all look at countries and kind of rank them and then kind of go to the entrepreneur community and you're like, hey, these are places that we would like to deploy money? Or is it purely the entrepreneur coming to you going, hey, we want to go do a project in Nicaragua and y'all underwrite it? Like, who's driving the ship there? It'd be the entrepreneur coming to us. Yeah. And... Or big company. I mean, we do yeah. GE or individuals and things. To be an individual doing it, you have to have incredible patience and staying power. It's just not like an entrepreneur walks in and said, let me 30 million bucks to go build this port or airport or something. Because yeah. it might take a year or two years to get through the process. So usually the big companies have the patience to get through it. But it really is a tool of our foreign policy and national security. So Doing that diamond deal in Botswana, the reason we did that, we didn't want the Chinese doing it for some political reasons there. But I reemphasized all of our stuff to the Caribbean and to fight the Chinese Belt and Road Initiative. So places like India, uh, you know, Nepal, throughout that. What's region. the Chinese Belt and Road Initiative? The Chinese are trying to create, recreate Marco Polo's old trail, basically from China to England. And they want to have a seamless railroad, pipelines, telecommunications system so they're able to export from China throughout Europe unimpeded. Today, that's put stuff on ships and different things. So that's the Belt and Road. Are they going to be successful? Well, they're spending trillions of dollars doing it. I mean, you can look it up, the Chinese Belt and Road thing. And we would go to places, countries that you never heard of, like the country of Georgia or I was in Ukraine doing deals and they're trying to make these connectors, trying to finance deals in between to keep the connection uh, from happening. What's the coolest project you you worked on? The coolest project? God, they're also neat. I mean, I, I was fascinated in South Africa. We did a lot of stuff down there. They had incredibly high unemployment rate. The Chinese are coming in there in a big way. And we did a lot of a lot of entrepreneurs in these countries, they just want access to capital. I met this one uh, couple, they're, they're from, uh, is a brother and sister from New Jersey who came up with a concept, which we helped finance to move. There's corruption at every border. You know, you got to pay off some bribes, get trucks across. And so they came up with kind of a corruption less or non-corruption way of your General Electric or your Caterpillar, and you need to move a crane from Zambia to Zimbabwe, and you're going through three countries in between. How do I do it without all the corruption? But if we came in and lent the money for these people to handle it all, when they go to the border crossings and as U.S. company, you, you're able to um, bypass those things. So that helped commerce open up. You know, one thing we're unique in the United States, you can't impede interstate commerce between Texas and Oklahoma or Nebraska. You can get in a truck and just drive there. They can't have border stops all the way yeah. along. Imagine in these smaller uh, countries like in South Africa, you can't move stuff cross border. And do they do that purely for corrupt reasons? I mean, yeah, corrupt. Re yeah, yeah, pretty much. <laughs> Where is the world growing that at we sitting here in America probably don't think about as much? I know India is just crushing it. Obviously, China, we hear about every day. We just had a president that talked about China yeah, all the time. Right. But what are some other areas that are just like 
Africa, where should Americans be putting money if you're going international? Can you answer that? No, you got to. Well, you got to figure out what strategically has it fit. I yeah. Mean, what do you want? Where do you want to put your money? From? Well, I guess like what's a country that would catch most Americans by surprise that's like really starting to thrive? Um, Vietnam. Okay. That was incredible. I went over there. We did a lot of projects over there. Actually, I went over with the with the president on a Asia summit. Yeah. And, you know, growing up during the Vietnam War, I had no idea how the people over there would think of Americans. Well, they love Americans. They hate the Chinese. But man, these countries are polluted. We get a lot of grief in the U.S. for for uh, carbon emissions and all that stuff. We had the cleanest air here. Go to some place. Go to China. They have hundreds of coal-fired plants. They don't get any grief for that. Yeah. And they're selling their coal to countries like Vietnam. I got off the plane in Hanoi, and I'm driving to the hotel, and I was like, wow, you guys have the thickest fog in this town. The guy goes, that's not fog. That's pollution. <laughs> My eyes were burning. I mean, it's unbelievable that yeah. people... And think of the health issues and things that go on that. So if, you know, being ma- waving the magic wand, it's like get people off these coal-fired plants in these countries. How are we going to be competitive against China? And they can do whatever they want. They have a ruler that's going to be there 100 years. They, they, they control, they contain their media. Like, can we be competitive with them? Well, if you look at when Russia fell, why did they fail? We bankrupt the country, basically, Yeah, through our Star Wars initiative in the military. China, and I just see this in these countries, they throw trillions of dollars in loans and infrastructure to countries that can't pay them back, like Venezuela and different places. I don't know, eventually they just collapse under, Yeah, you know, but they've got enslaving people that, yeah. you know, they're forcing out. So. Yeah. All right. So you're, you're back out of the government, you're back in Dallas. What's like interesting to you going forward? Uh, we'll, we're going to move to some personal stuff at the end, but I know you're working on two big hotels downtown Dallas. Yeah, going to re- reshape downtown Dallas. But what else is interesting? What else are you working well, on? Well, what I've got in downtown, I bought the Dallas Morning News complex. Yep, about um, twelve acres next door to the Dow, the Omni Hotel, and the Dallas Convention Center. We're going to redevelop that as a huge conference facility. We're going to have big entertainment and things for the convention center that. We're doing a thousand room hotel, convention hotel, which is all ready to go. Um, we were to start last fall. Yeah. So anyway, I got a lot of plans sitting in my office. But yeah, when life gets back, we're, we're dusting the plans off for that. Um, like I said, we got big Knox Street project. Just, you know, kind of watching Dallas and see, you know, how things go. It's interesting. Your downtown here in Fort Worth is Sundance. is such a great downtown and yeah. so energetic. And our downtown... They're converting all these huge office buildings to apartments, which is great, but we need office workers downtown. And I just don't know what ends up happening to the big 1980s million square foot plus buildings where do employers come back there? Yeah. Well, right. you got Brady Wood. Do, I mean, not Brady. Uh, Jonas Wood. Jonas Wood doing his big, big deal. Mm-hmm. You got, uh, what's his name that owns the seven blocks to the south? Tim uh, Headington. Headington. And then... Uh, uh, Hokey Global, Mike Hoke. Yeah. And there's a lot of, it's posturing well to do something big. Yeah, it'll just be interesting to see how it plays out. You need that one big relocation, like a Toyota or someone to help spur it on because there's kind of a drip, drip, drip of tenants out of downtown yep. without this impactful tenant coming in. But 
People I've talked to from San Francisco and different areas that have come in, they're amazed. You can live in like Lakewood area of Dallas and Lake County. You're five minutes from downtown Dallas with a very affordable house and a beautiful home around White Rock Lake. What's the pitch of downtown over uptown? It's cheaper. It's cheaper, but your operating costs are the same. Right. Right. And so let's say you can get a $25 deal in one of those buildings versus $40 or something. You can go to the Crescent for $35. I think a lot of people are saying for my employees, I'll pay a premium because that's just the cost of, of, uh, you know, em- employee retention. Yep. I think so. But um, like it, you mentioned like your Knox deal, are y'all going to put office over there? We're going to start with a hundred thousand feet. There's a 250,000 foot building that'll be done this summer that where where's furniture used to be. Our first phase is going to have about a hundred thousand feet of office, 70,000 feet of retail, 120 room hotel, and then probably 200 units of apartments and condos on top. Yep. And so that's phase one. Okay. All right, some personal questions, and then we'll wrap her home. Do you have a childhood experience that you remember that kind of shaped the trajectory of your life? Like something, it could be a one-off experience or a sport you played or something that kind of, if you hadn't done that, you might not be where you are today. You know, I'd say I was an Eagle Scout and Boy Scouts, and I think that gave me a great work ethic. I ended up being, you know, it was the biggest troop in the BSA. It was called Troop 82. And I was very involved. And I went to jamborees and stuff. And I learned leadership from that on. So I think that no one's ever asked me that question. But yeah. in reflection, I've always looked at scouts as something that you go into young and you end up as if you stick with it as a leader. But getting Eagle Scout is so many people drop out at after first class or star or life and you know, I've had so many people tell me, my gosh, if I just stayed another three months, I've been an eagle. Yeah. Well, you got you to get over the goal line. I started asking that question just because you talk to enough people, you realize that they always kind of reference something that happened early on that kind of changed uh, who they were. So what's one thing that you believe that a lot of people don't believe? Well, depends who the lot of people are. I mean, I'm very optimistic about America and where we're going. That's, that would, uh, unfortunately, that probably makes you uh, uh, unique right now. Yeah. And you know, I'm in your camp. I think we live in the greatest country in the world. Well, I just, if you look back at history, you go, God, this horrible times. I mean, we've always had bad times. Oh, there's always been challenges. Look at the Vietnam era. Look back at the Spanish flu. Look at World War II. I mean, I lost an uncle in World War II. And I can't imagine my grandmother when they came to the knock on the front door and tell them her son died, you know, bombing Germany yep. and things. And so you just have to deal with the times here. But my gosh, we got the opportunity being in Texas, being in the Metroplex. I mean, there's never a better time or place to be than here. We have to keep clean government, though. I mean, that's like, like at City Hall and the counties, as long as we can keep. But my frustration in Dallas right now is getting a building permit. Yep. I mean, you got to be kidding me what a nightmare it is to get building permits, the TABC. The hell, I mean, just try to go get a driver's license, what a pain everything is. Yep. But if we can keep clean government and stuff that's efficient. I can we keep a, clean government? Yeah, as long as we're watching it. Yeah. You know, that's the problem with local newspapers. I can't speak to the Star-Telegram, but the Dallas Morning News does a pretty good job. But you got to have someone at City Hall every day looking around the corner to see what's going on. Smaller cities that have lost their newspapers, like New Orleans, don't even have a paper. Who's watching City Hall? Yeah. You got to have them always fearful. 
Yep. Yep. Uh, what's the best advice uh, you've ever been given? Still looking for it? Yeah. Pay yeah. your bills? Yeah. <laughs> Tip your waiter? Well, I, I would say it's reputation. You know, as I said, it's the very beginning. It's like you take a lifetime getting it. One time you're, you act wrong in a deal or someone feels, I mean, that can ruin people's careers and, you know, it's just, but it takes forever to get, get a good one. All right. Last one. You got to think deep on this one. Mm -hmm. If you own what you kind of do own the biggest billboard on, we'll call it the tollway or I-75 and you could put anything on that billboard for people driving by every day to see what would you put on the billboard? To see every day? Yeah. Besides eat at me casino. Uh, You know, be optimistic. Yep. You're you're an eternal optimist. All right, Ray. Thanks for joining me today. Thanks, Chris. Hey, everyone. It's Chris here again. Thank you so much for joining me on this journey. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts leave a five-star rating or write a quick review. Thanks again, and I'll see you on the next episode. Chris Powers is the founder and CEO of Fort Capital LP. All opinions from Chris and guests of the Fort podcast are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Fort Capital LP. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for real estate or investment decisions. The Fort with Chris Powers is produced by Straight Up Podcasts.